You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The FBI and the Department of Homeland Security warn that Hidden Cobra is actively pursuing DDoS campaigns. Microsoft patches the remaining Shatterbrokers' exploits, even in deprecated systems. The U.S. Congress votes to sanction Russia for election influence operations. Electrical and natural gas sectors work to protect themselves against crash override. Mergers and acquisitions seem to be followed by layoffs. Hexadite is said to be the latest case. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, June 15, 2017. The U.S. FBI and Department of Homeland Security warn that North Korea's government is responsible for a botnet being called Hidden Cobra that's been making trouble for some time. Believed to be connected to that well-known threat actor, the Lazarus Group, Hidden Cobra used Delta Charlie malware to herd botnets for distributed denial-of-service attacks against media, aerospace, infrastructure, and financial targets. U.S. businesses appear to have received the most attention, but Hidden Cobra's hood is thought to cover the globe. Kaspersky Lab, in a comment on U.S. CERT's warning, says that the tools mentioned in the technical advisory have been observed in the wild in some 26 countries, including, in addition to the U.S., France, Brazil, and Russia. As was the case with the WannaCry threat actors, who've also been connected, although with less consensus, to the Lazarus Group and the North Korean regime, Hidden Cobra shows a strong preference for beyond-end-of-life and unpatched Microsoft Windows instances. Recognizing the magnitude of this problem, Microsoft this week has taken the unusual step of issuing patches for retired Windows versions. The exploits addressed, the last of those leaked by the shadow brokers, include Exploding Can, which targets old versions of the Internet Information Services web server to permit remote code execution, Esteem Audit, a flaw in Windows Remote Desktop Protocol, and Englishman Dentist, which permits remote code execution in object linking and embedding. Redmond says it's decided to patch because of the unusually elevated threat of state actors using exploits in the wild the shadow brokers leaked in April. It's warned users not to expect patching of deprecated systems to become the norm. Indeed, some observers have criticized Microsoft's decision as likelier to prolong the agony than to ameliorate the problem. The U.S. Congress has voted overwhelmingly to sanction Russia over its probing of U.S. electoral machinery. Other recent sanctions have addressed Russian incursions into Ukraine. Sanctions are now being leveled in response to election influence operations. Those operations have been shown recently to have been more extensive and persistent than hitherto believed. Most of the Russian activity, beyond the now well-known doxing of the Democratic Party and Clinton presidential campaign, seemed to have concentrated on accessing voter registration data. Those data were put to use in 11th-hour spearfishing campaigns, 
and also in some preliminary attempts at altering voter information in state databases. There's much understandable dudgeon in Congress over Russian influence operations, and for all the furor one might be forgiven for concluding that this is something new. In fact, it's not. Historians and security experts point out that such activities, both black propaganda and election influence operations, are nothing new. The website War on the Rocks, for one, usefully traces their history back eight decades. The publication tells a story more lurid than the most overheated conspiracy theories today, whether left or right, have imagined. From roughly 1937 on, U.S. Representative Samuel Dickstein was on the payroll of the NKVD, the Stalin era's ancestor of the KGB, and now, of course, the FSB. Dickstein, Democrat of New York, was the founding co-chair of, wait for it, the House Un-American Activities Committee, later famous as the young Representative Richard Nixon's launching point to national prominence. Representative Dickstein not only served as an agent of influence, but he also assisted NKVD illegals in obtaining passports and other materials necessary to their free operation in the United States. His successes were limited largely on the Soviet side. His NKVD handlers were on several occasions purged and shot. What is new today is the enabling role the Internet now plays in rapid dissemination of unfiltered fish stories and in opening up many new access points to information that up through the first two-thirds of the 20th century would have required a black bag job to obtain. A special congressional election in the U.S. state of Georgia draws attention to voting system security weaknesses, and Georgia is unlikely to be alone. The special election, which concludes June 20th, is being watched closely as an index of the general vulnerability of U.S. election systems. If you're in IT, chances are you've got co-workers coming to you from time to time to ask for your help with their personal devices, their laptops or mobile devices. Firemon recently conducted a survey of 350 security IT pros and found that 83% of them regularly help co-workers with personal computer problems, and 80% of them say it takes more than an hour per week. That adds up. Michael Callahan is Chief Marketing Officer at Firemon. What we thought people were going to say was, they were spending um, almost all of their time just firefighting, right? And which a lot of them were, um, just to keep up with the latest risk or the latest threat or incident or whatever it was. What we found um, was that they were saying quite a bit of their time was actually spent helping out their colleagues, um, personal IT issues. So their, their laptops, their phones, their, you know, their tablets, um, which was surprising to us. So I can imagine uh, many of our listeners who work in IT furiously nodding their heads in agreement at the notion that uh, that they get uh, they get you know commonly asked to help um, coworkers with their personal devices. I'm curious because you know it strikes me that that this is sort of uh, part of the politics of of everyday office life. You know, if the head of HR comes to me and says, "Hey, I'm having trouble with my with my phone," or you know, "I can't figure out how to save this file on my laptop," um, I'd can't imagine someone just sort of shuffling that person away and saying, no, I don't have time for you. I think that's true. You can't just say no, because in some level, it does impact the business, even though it's their personal devices. So even if you, the like the IT person wasn't helping, then the person is going to probably try to self-help, which takes away from their time to focus on their normal job because they're trying to you know download a patch or unfreeze something or, or whatever. Um, so it, it, it is a little bit just of the daily politics um, uh, or 80 percent of the IT people said that, that they were being asked to help fix things by you know personal things of their colleagues. So it wasn't like 5% or 10% 
it was almost everyone, right? So it wasn't was 100%, but it was 80%. About the same amount, 80% of them said, of that group said, it takes uh, more than an hour a week. So the, the impact is actually not immaterial across an organization. If this is a reality and, uh, you know, for non-technical reasons, it would be hard to shut down this sort of thing, what, what, are, the, what are your suggestions for how organizations can deal with it? I don't think it's going away, right? So, like to, to what you just said, um, you the, you can't just say sorry um, and, and close your door. So, I think there's another another approach that has to happen. Is there is going to be a, an amount of time that people will need to devote to this? There's a couple things that the IT teams could do. They could have particular office hours um, that where they uh, open themselves up. <clears throat> so at least it's a little more contained. Although the the, the downside of that is computers don't break between you know nine and ten in the morning. It's mm-hmm. it's it's at varying times. But you could possibly consolidate um, some of the requests. Could you do things to free up more time so that the IT staff wasn't as stressed out? So when they're trying to manage the security infrastructure, give them tools that helps them automate that. Right. So give them the tool so that they're able to manage some of the more business-related stuff maybe a little more effectively. That's Michael Callahan from Firemon. Crash override malware is receiving close attention at high levels of government and industry. Dragos analyzed crash override from samples obtained during investigation of last winter's Ukrainian power grid hack. Related sectors are watching the electrical industry's response closely. DNG, ISAC, and others suspect the malware may have implications for the natural gas industry as well. DNG, ISAC, the security information organization of the downstream natural gas sector, is working closely with their counterparts in the electrical power sector to develop an effective response to crash override. Bitfinex, the world's largest Bitcoin exchange, began experiencing DDoS attacks Tuesday. They continued through yesterday, and the exchange seems not yet to have fully recovered. In industry news, Microsoft confirmed last week that it was buying Hexadite. VentureBeat reports that Hexadite laid off most of its U.S.-based workforce on the day of the announcement. And finally, to return to our earlier notes about the long-standing Russian policy of seeking to influence U.S. politics, we should note in the interest of clarity and historical accuracy that Richard Nixon was never identified as a paid Soviet agent. Whatever Mr. Nixon's dog Checker's provenance may have been, it almost surely wasn't Moscow Central. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire.
Joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the director of analysis at Terbium Labs. Uh, Emily, you know, we hear about these high-profile attacks, but you want to make the point that um, maybe those aren't the things that in day-to-day operations people need to be focused on. Absolutely. I think... You know, we hear about attacks, uh, whether it's something like Yahoo or LinkedIn or Ashley Madison or TalkTalk, Talk, you know, depending on your industry and what you're interested in. We hear about these breaches and that's great. And, you know, these are I think the the press that we see around these can help to drive conversations about security and privacy as a whole. But I think it creates this sort of misconception that breaches happen to big companies and only to big companies or that you only need to worry about the breaches that happen to big companies. And I think that really draws attention away from the fact that most of the data that I at least see all day, every day, isn't coming from the, the yahoos of the world. It's coming from, you know, the place you get your car serviced or, you know, the, the dentist that you see. So it's, I mean, an analogy would be how people are worried about, you know, an airplane crashing when they're, you're more likely to get run over by a car crossing the street. Absolutely. And I'm not saying we shouldn't make our planes safer, but you should also look both ways before you cross and you should make sure that your brakes are working. So when we see all these stories about zero days, uh, maybe that's not uh, what we should be chasing after. Yeah, I think in the same way that it's not the best use of energy or resources to focus only on big breaches and preventing big breaches. You know, I think there's a tendency to focus on the latest, sexiest exploit or the, you know, the the most popular strain of ransomware right now, when really what's happening every day, you know, this equivalent of, you know, kind of you know, getting rear-ended, for example, um, are really the very simple things you don't want to hear about, you don't want to talk about, like phishing, or, you know, people poking at, you know, known vulnerabilities in, in databases, right? The MongoDB, for example. Right. The, the everyday uh, sort of uh, boring things that you have to deal with, the blocking and tackling uh, that doesn't get very much attention. Obviously, that... So, so I guess what we're saying is, you know, be, beware of chasing shiny objects. Absolutely. Uh, the shiny objects are always going to be there, and they're going to come along, and they're going to be interesting, and we should talk about them. But... I think it creates this idea that, you know, these breaches, when they happen, they happen big and they happen loud and they happen in isolation. And you should be worried about one major attack. Well, you know, have you talked to your employees about clicking on links in their emails? Have you done it recently? How recently? Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 
Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.